Welcome to The Jewish Diasporist, a podcast exploring the political, cultural, and social implications of life in diaspora. I'm Zach Smarin. And I'm Ben Yanowitz. Today we're hosting Josh Berg. Josh is a guy that holds quite a special place in my heart, as he has played a very important role in my development as an organizer within Jewish spaces. Last year, Josh helped coordinate a campaign that I led at our Jewish summer camp. This is a sleepaway camp where kids spend weeks, months even, in order to be in Jewish community with each other. And And because of that, it's a really important space for Jews to be able to develop their Jewish identity. Because as we know, Jewish identity is not something that just happens. It's something that really takes a lot of time to develop. And because of that, camps are really important, especially for me and Josh, as we'll discuss. Because of that, the way our camp has discussed Israel-Palestine in the past has been quite problematic. This led me actually to lead my first organizing initiative last summer, which Josh served as an advisor on in creating. And while it wasn't fully successful, we had have made progress in the way that our camp discusses this. We actually got the directors to say that they did not want to have Israel programming if it wasn't done right. While that's not an entire win, it actually shows that just trying and pushing that boulder up that hill can have results down the line, especially as organizers and activists at camp are continuing to do this work, hopefully for years to come. Josh works for the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C., which is where he is calling us from, and he is currently on the executive of If Not Now. If not now, to those who might have not heard of it yet, is one of the largest Jewish left organizations in the United States. Is it an anti-occupation organization? Is it a pro-peace organization? Is it an anti-apartheid organization? And what does this all have to do with the diaspora? These are some of the questions that we will be also answering in the latter part of today's podcast. I've learned a lot from Josh as an individual, and I hope that this episode can help you learn a lot from him as well. Josh, it's great to have you here. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Man, where to begin? I suppose I define myself as a justice seeker, both in the American Jewish community or Jewish people more broadly, but also just in the world as well. My day job, I work at the Public Defender Service here in Washington, D.C., doing criminal defense investigation, working with the most marginalized and targeted communities here in nation's capital and working every day to get people out of jail. In my free time, I do a lot of organizing, whether it's with the Sunrise Movement or If Not Now or other progressive organizations in causes. I'm always trying to get myself in a little bit of trouble wherever I go. That sounds like you've got a lot of stuff covered there. I try. I try. You and Ben know each other for much longer. Ben, where did you get to know each other? So I know Josh back from when we used to go to camp together. Should I name it? Yes. (laughs) Say names. (laughs) (laughs) So that is URJ Camp Newman. Beautiful Jewish summer camp in Santa Rosa, California. It's incredibly beautiful. Josh, you're a couple years older than me. But I feel like it's one of those things where as time goes on, those years stop meaning so much. And then 2021, I was a CIT advisor. Advisor, and you visited again. That means I was uh, basically a counselor for the 17 year olds, the counselors in training. And then you visited, I remember, one week, and it was really good to catch up with you. I remember you were Rosh for Hevra 2019, a couple years before. And just this last summer, I was a Rosh for Hevra. Hevra is the session that is society in Hebrew, Hevra, technically. It's a session that's about social justice, basically, an opportunity to teach a bunch of 15 year old kids organizing skills and teach them to make change. And you really inspired me to do that. I didn't really think I was going to come back to camp 
But then hearing your experience and the experience of some of the campers that were in your session who were my campers that summer was really powerful. I mean, just one camper told me, I don't remember how big the session was. It was probably less than 20 people even. But she said that you made 15 people feel like they could change the world. And that is a power that I feel only a summer camp can provide. And it's a beautiful way to be able to work with other Jews and make an impact in people's lives. So what does camp mean to you, Josh? You know, I would struggle to put it better than how you just put it. It's funny. I've been asked this question before, right? Of like, what does camp mean or put differently? Like, why did you keep going back to camp summer after summer? I spent 15 summers of my life there between being a camper and a staff member, right? It's just like a ridiculous portion of my time on this planet. And the thing I realized as I got older was that camp was perhaps the only place in my life, particularly as a staff member, where I could give other human beings the tools to go out and make the world a better place, whether it was helping young boys think about their identities as men in the world and the roles of sexism and gender oppression that exists in the world, right? Camp was a place to have those conversations and camp was a place to learn organizing skills and teach organizing skills and do it in a way that was grounded in our Jewish identity that was deeply intertwined with our self-interest as Jews in the world. That's a little bit of what camp meant for me. And camp has also though meant some of my best friends in my life, right? People that will be in my wedding, people that will be involved in my life, probably for the entirety of it. So it's a very, I think, special place for all those reasons. It's also an intense place where a tremendous amount of identity formation happens and there's actually a lot at stake. And I'm sure we'll talk about that more. Yeah, absolutely. For me, I think one of the things that made camp so special is the sense of community that you find when you are living in close proximity with dozens of other people, all of whom are Jews and you're doing Jewish things. I mean, of course, it's not even necessarily just about being Jewish. It's more of just the sense that you're together and going through sort of shenanigans that you go through as a teenager or younger even when you're away from your parents. And really, the people that become your parents are like four or five, six years older than you, and you really are able to find who you are. And I've found that that's been hugely influential on my Jewish identity because when your identity is grounded in a social community that is not necessarily about one specific place, though of course camp likes to say like, oh, welcome home when you come to camp. They try to actively be another home for people. And I think that question of how camp becomes a home, even though it is a little less than 500 acres in the mountains of Santa Rosa, technically I think it's the largest piece of Jewish land on the West Coast, but this concept of Jewish land or land stewarded by Jews, I I think is a big question, the way that it informs our identity, where you can be in a Jewish community on the west coast of California. It's not necessarily about any one place. And for me, that's been a big impact in the way that I understand my own Jewish identity. I want to share one more little story about what camp is, because I think it, it actually deeply informs yeah. how I view it, both opportunity and, and what's at stake and the power of it. There's this assistant director that worked at Camp Newman for several summers, Mikey Latner. When folks would ask him what made camp special, he had this very simple answer. Camp is a place full of people that give a fuck. People that give a fuck about each other, people that give a fuck about what they're doing in the world. Camping a basic collection of people that are all trying to do something major, whatever that may 
may be, right, is sort of the special juice to it. Yeah, no, I, I just have beef with Mikey because he didn't hire me in 2018 and never told me why. And when people asked him why he didn't hire me, he said, he knows. But boy, I tell you, I do not know. <laughs> so No Jewish spaces without politics, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have a little bit of beef with him. I wasn't even that political in 2018. It was more just, I have no clue. I have beef on him. <laughs> Roast Mikey moments. It'd be great to hear a little bit more about the way that your political direction has formed. I know you're organizing with If Not Now, and I was wondering how do you get involved with If Not Now and what really brought your politics in that direction? Bear with me, it's a little bit of a story, but we'll get there in the end, I promise. I think you have to know a little bit about where I'm from to begin with. Talked about growing up at a reformed Jewish summer camp in Northern California. It's a massive piece of my identity. But I'm also the son of a Jewish professional. My mom worked for the Marin County Jewish Community Center, the JCC, for over 25 years. She has an honorary doctorate from Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Southern California. She worked for the Federation for a time. It's all to say from literally the day I was born, I was deeply intertwined with sort of established institutional Jewish world in Northern California. The people that held power were close family friends. I quite literally grew up in those spaces. I went to Jewish school from preschool all the way through the end of high school. College was my first time in a non-Jewish school. My dad was also involved in, in Jewish community. He would sit on various organizational boards from time to time, right? It's all to say that I grew up in what a lot of people call like the Jewish bubble. That was my world. And it's a world where I still feel very at home and comfortable in. Growing up, Israel was always this like sunshine and rainbows cultural piece. Some of my earliest memories were like putting little notes in styrofoam, western wall at preschool, or just having teachers that were Israeli and they would talk about where they were from and we'd look at the map and they'd show us all the different landmarks in Israel. And then of course at summer camp I had shlichim, Israeli staff members who would come. At camp, I mean, they were always the coolest of the cool, right? They were a couple few years older than all the other staff members members, right? They just gotten out of the army. They were just like full of intrigue and excitement. And they taught us a lot about Israel. They taught us about cherry tomatoes and they taught us about the Dead Sea. They taught us about Bedouins. They taught us about Druze. And they taught us about the Israeli army constantly because we as young people would constantly ask them, oh, tell us about your time in the army. And they were always happy to share all of the, the stories from their training and the operations they would go on. And they would also take us through quasi-IDF military training, right? And we loved it, right? Because like here were some like older Israeli macho guys teaching us how to be strong Jewish men in the world was I think essentially the subtext of it. So that's all to say Israel was a very exciting and comfortable place. And I was always told that it was a second home. And, and I think I felt that. I went on trips to Israel in eighth grade for a few weeks. And again, my junior year of high school. And I mean, these were were essentially like three week long birthright trips, right? Just like touring around the country, seeing all the cultural stuff, all the different ways Jews were living in Israel and getting like Israeli history. And I don't think I ever heard the word Palestinian on those trips. I don't think I ever saw the separation barrier on those trips. We never talked about the West Bank or Gaza. When we talked about the wars, it was always sort of this like David and Goliath, Israel overcoming all the evil Arab countries around them. 
And then we would talk about the Holocaust and then leave the Holocaust Museum and go to the Victims of Terror Memorial at the burial ground in the same place at Bar Herzl. And that was sort of like the story. Fast forward to like my senior year of high school, a couple of weeks before we graduated my school, like to do these series of like seminars where they like bring in folks to just like teach the seniors different skills they thought they needed to teach us before we went off into the world, right? They would like teach us about renting an apartment. They would teach us about doing our taxes and saving money. And then they also brought in the local JCRC, the Jewish Community Relations Council, to do a two-day-long training on how to be an Israel advocate on your college campus. And this was presented in the same vein as how to like be responsible with your money, right? It was an essential skill that you will need to have to be a successful Jewish college student in today's day and age. And I think my graduating class of 46 took that lesson very much to heart. And many of us went off the campus, myself included, to go be the Israel advocates that we had been trained to be to that point. So my freshman year, went to University of Michigan, got involved with APAC, right? Like APAC on campus events, would go to them. The ironic thing about APAC at University of Michigan, as an aside, is that it's so popular that you can't actually have any meaningful role until you're like an upperclassman, junior or senior. So my engagement was like actually fairly peripheral. I was just showing up to events and listening to speakers and that kind of thing. And of course, there was a nice BDS referendum my freshman year. So I went and stayed up into the wee hours of the night listening to that and cheering on on all the pro-Israel speakers. That was sort of my politics in a nutshell, right? I was this like Jewish kid from California who voted for Hillary Clinton, was a Democratic voter, but was actually quite right-wing on Israel. I was so right-wing that by the end of my freshman year, APAC wasn't enough for me, right? I needed an organization that was going to be more aggressive on campus. And so I was a part of founding Students Supporting Israel at University of Michigan. If you're not familiar with, you should go look them up. But they are the kind of people that hold um, Indigenous People Weeks on college campuses and have um, a Native American next to an Israeli person, right? And say, this is the same cause kind of thing. They're quite perverse in the way that they do their advocacy. But that's where my politics were at the time. So you might be asking yourself, Ben mentioned I'm involved with this not now, like, how did we go from like the farthest right a young American Jew could be to the other end of the spectrum? And it all happened sort of my sophomore year. There was another BDS referendum, like the good Israel advocate I was. I went to that hearing and I sat and I listened to all the speeches. But this time, something that really shook me happened. A graduate student instructor from one of my courses, who I didn't know was Palestinian, but who turned out to be Palestinian, got up at the BDS referendum hearing. And she told her story. She told of the time she had tried to visit Palestine and had been held up and stopped and harassed in the airport. How if she wanted to go from her family in Ramallah to her family in Bethlehem, a 30-minute drive turned into an all-day excursion and passing through checkpoints and being treated like human cattle. And she told about how her grandmother still had the key to the house that her family had fled from in 1948. In the past, I think I'd been able to dismiss the same kinds of stories that had entered my ears as just Palestinian propaganda, as sob stories, as they're just out to get Israel and the Jews, so who cares? But this was a real human being that I had been interacting with for several months every week at that point. Something in me just attached itself to words, told me to think deeper 
and see her as a human being. I sort of had a choice in that moment, right? Was I just going to ignore her or was I going to be able to see her for the human being that I knew? And I think I couldn't help but see the human being in her. And that just sort of started a like slow unraveling of all of my politics on Israel-Palestine. At that point, I was enrolled in a course that was called the Arab-Israeli Conflict. And from that point on, like we'd have readings, you know, it would be often like a Palestinian writer and an Israeli writer, and we pull them next to each other and compare them. Each time we like read something from a Palestinian author, for the first time I was reading it with fresh eyes, and it was penetrating, I think, my consciousness as the human story that it was rather than like some sob story of propaganda. And so I think it just started from there. And I think the more I learned and the more I read and the more I sought out opportunities to hear stories that I'd never heard in my life to that point because of the communities I grew up in, I was forced to sort of ask myself a question of, is this the like version of Jewish peoplehood in a Jewish state that is aligned with California liberal values that I held at the same time? You know, how could I go to summer camp and be a staff member in a social justice session advocating for immigrant rights, for example, um, and everybody's right to be free and make a better lives for themselves, yet have this Jewish state that was denying freedom and dignity and equality to another people, right? And in that moment, I realized what my community had told me growing up was wrong. In that time, I became sort of adjacent to some folks involved with If Not Now. And I remember one night I like went to the If Not Now website and it was a big deal, right? Because like to that point, I'd be we've like their evil anti-semitic self-hating jews undermining the safety of the jewish people and i read this line on the website it said something like the occupation is a daily nightmare for palestinians in a moral crisis or disaster for the jewish people and it just clicked i was like oh that's my politics that's what i believe right i believe that checkpoints are evil and i believe that the jewish state can never be what it might be able to be with those checkpoints in place for example i think from that point on i was shifted and I think the rest is history. There's so much to unpack there. That's not the kind of experience that I've been around. This kind of life in the Jewish bubble, in the British context, it's often described as Northwest London. And there's also a lot of this infrastructure around the schools, the camps. And if you're outside of that, that can feel very much alienating, especially when everybody starts doing, I don't know if this is a thing in America, but everybody starts doing the different Macarena dances. Prevention, yeah. <laughs> it can feel quite alienating, even those little areas, but also the forging of connections that you've been talking about, which is why it's been so delightful listening to you two talking about that and reminiscing on it. Regarding the stories as well, I mean, something that I remember a fellow Naamodnik talked about and Namod is kind of the British if not now we'll get to them a little bit later but they talked about the time that they were in Jewish school and they had a situation where they were pretending to be on a plane to Israel on El Al there was a person walking through the chairs and saying beef or chicken beef or chicken <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this just seems you know wild to me in that context because I didn't have any of that growing up. But I think that that also reinforces the point of needing to present alternative perspectives. For a lot of people that hold Israel or this imagined view of what Israel is so close to heart, it doesn't come from deeply immersing yourself in the literature of the conflict. It comes from these kinds of stories. And because it's so ingrained, I would say that some of these behaviours 
verge on form of brainwashing. A kind of alternative perspective that is very human is important, if only for the sake of people knowing that there is the possibility of being involved in your local community without all these preconceived motions. The reason why it's important for us to be engaged in this stuff is that the kind of activities that you talked about, in your case of being a Palestinian making this kind of speech, unfortunately, well, it shouldn't be up to Palestinians to be the only ones to advocate for these issues. That's right. And in any case, they are not able to be involved locally in Jewish communal spaces in the same way that we are. You know, having had quite a few conversations about this stuff in my time at university, it's occurred quite a few times to me that someone said, oh, I've never thought about it this way, or no one made this case in this way, thank you, even if they don't immediately change their opinions, which happens quite rarely. And you think about whether it's actually that you said something, you articulated the Palestine solidarity case in some brilliant way, or whether they listened to you because they knew you, they knew that you come in week in, week out, or every now and then into the community, go to the Friday night dinners, you, you sing Le Chadodi, or whatever. They were able to connect through that rather than some kind of caricature of what self-hating Jew might be. Ben? Yes, yeah, so I wanted to talk a little about, if not now, and using this to talk about your evolving politics since you said it became so clear that fighting the occupation was an important part of your Jewish politics. I know recently, since If Not Now is founded in 2014, I know you guys relaunched a couple years ago. When you did relaunch, you did shift a little bit in your politics. And that was that your new mission statement, I think for the next five years, is that If Not Now is a movement of American Jews leading our community to reject apartheid, note the difference apartheid versus occupation, oppose the US government's blank check to Israel, and demand equality, justice, and a thriving future for all Palestinians and Israelis. So I was kind of wondering how your politics have shifted from using the word occupation as the issue to seeing it as apartheid, and how that shifting within your own thinking as well as within If Not Now has taken place. It's a great question. You're asking the right person. I helped write that new mission statement. And you're right, there are a lot of very intentional choices. There's not a single word in that mission statement that was not thought about and argued about about and debated at nauseum. There's plenty for us to talk about there. If not now's original mission statement was we are a movement of young American Jews working to end our community support for the occupation. In 2014, 2015, 2016, that was radical. And it was radical because no one used the word occupation, not even J Street. Since then, we won on the word occupation. Even if you're on the right wing, even, you cannot talk about Israel-Palestine without using the word occupation. If you've refused to do it, you're seen as absurd as denying reality. Part of the reason why we made that shift was because we won. It's one of the things that, if not now, is perhaps most responsible for it, bringing the reality of the occupation into the mainstream. But at the same time, right, as anyone who works on Israel-Palestine knows, the more you dive into the issues on the ground, the more you start to realize, right, this is far deeper than just some in occupation, right? Occupation is a term that we use to refer to when a military holds a specific territory for a certain amount of time. Israel has been controlling Gaza and the West Bank for over 50 years now. This isn't some temporary occupation. This has all the markings of a regime that fully intends to stay permanently. And within the context of that regime, there are two laws for two people. 
if you are a Jew living in the West Bank, you get Israeli citizenship. You have the ability to vote in the elections that govern your life. You have access to public utilities like water and electricity and massive paved highways just around the corner from your house that connect you to the rest of the country. If you're a Palestinian born in the village adjacent to that settlement that I was just describing, you do not get Israeli citizenship. You do not have a say in the regime that governs your day-to-day life. You are subject to a different set of laws. You're subject to military law. You are not allowed to build or improve your home or your land. You do not have freedom of movement. You do not have access to public utilities. All the things that one can say about a system where people are granted different legal rights based on their ethnicity or race are true. When it comes to Israel and the West Bank, and perhaps even true, within Israel proper as well. And so that's also part of the reason why, if not now, decided to update and use the term apartheid, because we think simply it's accurate. There's a broad consensus in the human rights community and even with Israeli human rights groups on the ground that this is apartheid, that's what's happening. So part of it is strategic, right? It's a question of, okay, is there a term that is quite galvanizing and polarizing for people, right? Like if you agree that something is apartheid, then you are compelled to take action against it in a certain way, right? And so if we can convince lots of American Jews that what is happening is apartheid, right? They're like morally bound actually to do something about it in a way that the term occupation doesn't necessarily require to them. But we also use the term apartheid because it's accurate and it's true and it's reflective of all of our partners on the ground doing this work. That was the first part of it. And I think it is very accurate. I mean, I was just in Palestine, Israel last week with the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. And after spending several days in Masafariyata, which is at basically the forefront of the occupation and its atrocities and denial of rights to Palestinians, and then coming back into Jerusalem, thinking about the differential levels of oppression. I think so much of discourse ignores the fact that, yeah, Palestinians that have been there since 48, the 48 Palestinians, they have Israeli citizenship. They can theoretically vote and they do have protections. They are under the Israeli civil legal system as opposed to the military legal system as it exists within the West Bank. But I think apartheid is the right word, and I think understanding the unity across that system, that the same army that bulldozes people's schools and roads and wells is the army that Israelis are forced to join when they turn 18. There is unity there, and the sooner we recognize that that is apartheid, it doesn't need to be equal across the whole system, that there are different geographical elements of it, and it's important to recognize that. But also, part of your mission statement is to oppose the U.S. government's blank check to Israel, and then demand equality justice and a thriving future. So I was wondering how those fit together and what you really see as that thriving future. I can start with the uh, US government piece of it. That's essentially a statement about how we think power works, and particularly as an organization of American Jews, how can we actually impact what happens on the ground between the river and the sea? Most of us are not Israeli, although there are plenty of Israelis in, in if not now. And so we don't have a right to vote in the government, right? We can't have direct impact on what's happening. But through a twist of history, the United States government is the largest benefactor of the Israeli government. 
government has been for many, many decades to the tune of $3.8 billion a year, plus anything extra on top of it that the Israeli government might ask for in any given year. And the US gives this to Israel as this link check, right? There are certain like conditions that Israel has to meet around spending 75% of that money on US arms manufacturers, but essentially they can do whatever they want with the money that is purchased through US arms manufacturers or you know the 25% left over. There's no accountability for how Israel uses that money to violate human rights, for example. The interesting thing is, I forget where I saw this statistic, but I think I read that US military aid to Israel makes up about 20% of the Israelis' army budget. It's a massive proportion. And so our calculation is fairly simple, that if the US government were to put conditions on that aid, for example, say you can't use this to violate Palestinian human rights or simply end the aid altogether, that would have the ability to make a significant impact on the way that the Israeli government treats Palestinians. And so it's a pretty simple equation for us. We're American Jews and the American Jewish community has a disproportionate impact on U.S. politics when it comes to Israel-Palestine. And so therefore, we can impact how the U.S. government creates its policy in Israel-Palestine in a way that can shape for the better the reality on the ground. So that's part one of why we talk about the U.S. government explicitly. It's the main lever of power that we're trying to pull on as a movement. Quality justice, thriving future for all. Words chosen with a lot of intention. Internally, actually, maybe the most contentious part, the mission statement, because it really answers the question of what is the soul for the sake for? What is the world we're fighting for? And this is our vision in a nutshell. We want equality. We want a world where everybody, no matter where they're from, no matter what they look like, no matter who they love, on and on, has the same rights as anybody else. Sort of differently, if the problem is apartheid, the antidote is equality. Just like we want here in the United States or the UK, right? We want everybody to have equal access and basic human rights, the same as everybody else. So that's equality. Justice is our way of naming that there are past and ongoing harms that need to be rectified. In the same way here in the United States that we think about how the institution of slavery in the 1860s has impacted racial disparities to this day and the movement for reparations to rectify those harms. We think that there are the same sorts of solutions that are necessary in order to have a just outcome in Israel-Palestine, whether it is solutions around the refugee problem, around forced displacement and expulsion, issues around the right of return that we need to actually name and grapple with and hopefully reach a solution for past harms. We can't just say, oh, everything cool from this point forward that's not actually going to structurally address the issues that are actually at the core of this so-called conflict. And a thriving future for all, I think, is actually more about Jews than it is Palestinians. Often, Jews react to progressive work around Israel-Palestine by saying, what about Jewish safety, right? There's terrorism. There's Arab countries that we fought wars with. What are we going to do, right? How are we going to like stop Jews from being thrown into the sea? And this is our answer, that actually we're fighting for Palestinians and we're fighting for the safety of Jews all around around the world, that everybody has a right to a thriving future where they are, where they live, and where they're from. So it's a little bit of, I think, actually reassurance for Jews reading that statement to see themselves that in our work and to realize that our liberation is reliant and must be intertwined with the liberation of Palestinians and all other people. I really love that. I think that really sums up part of the way that we understand diasporism as well, that it's not just about the Palestinians' right to live wherever they want to live in peace 
peace and safety, but also as Jews and as all migrant communities and minority communities have the right to live and thrive where they exist and prosper and be part of a world that cares for them. And I think that's a really beautiful way to frame it. But also, I think it's one thing to put this into words. And I think there's a big question of action that really needs to be discussed and thought about. I went to a relaunch event for If Not Now last year. I saved a copy of your guys's presentation because who knows, things like that come in handy. And in it, you included like a uh, general timeline for this work over the next five years. I believe this was the mission statement for the current five years we're in or six years or something. What that said was that you're currently in what you have is phase one, which the top line goal is to build your base by uniting progressive Jews. That I think is an important thing to do. That's also what we are hoping to be part of helping do. I think you can't make change without being united within yourselves. But I was wondering, your campaign, I believe, your main campaign has been to fight APAC, which is silly that that used to be your organization. So I was wondering how that short-term goal fits into this broader vision for social change within our communities. It's a good question. To start with APAC, we know that they are a problem. They are a powerful, very well-funded lobby that endorsed 109 insurrectionists here in the United States, and they back politicians in Israel-Palestine that are pro-apartheid, pro-annexation, pro any number of oppressive segregationist policies in Israel-Palestine. APAC backs the same people in Israel-Palestine and in the United States. And here in the United States in particular, the last few years, they've changed strategies. APAC used to define itself as this like broad, bipartisan, grassroots organization with millions of members around the United States, Jews, and otherwise. And that was really the core of their power. But in the last decade or so, that power structure has crumbled. APAC has realized that the average Jew in the pew does not align with their interests. And so they've pivoted. They have become a more typical super PAC that we see in the United States. Think the NRA, think big pharma, think big oil. It's a fascinating statistic from the last round of elections in the United States that APAC as a super PAC spent more money in the races that they participated in than all of the other big special interests combined, which is just an insane statistic to think that in races that APAC is getting involved with, they're spending more than the gun lobby, than big oil, than big pharma, you name it. So their strategy has clearly changed. They know that they can't rely on grassroots power anymore. They know that they just have to take their billionaire Republican backers money and throw it into races. The concerning thing is that the races APAC is targeting are races in which there is a potential progressive champion running in the race. APAC has has realized that the progressive movement in the United States sees the reality in Israel-Palestine for what it is and isn't afraid to go after things like U.S. military aid. APAC is really scared of this. APAC sees the progressive movement is growing. And so that's why they're spending millions of dollars to target and try to take down progressive champions. Some folks have been able to win. Think of Jamal Bowman or Rashida Tlaib or Ilhan Omar or Summer Lee up in Pennsylvania. She just fought off millions of dollars from APAC and aligned packs like EMFI. But APAC has also had success. We can delude ourselves that in the last couple elections, APAC has been able to take down several potential progressives. That's sort of the fight that is at hand now is APAC and its millions of dollars that they're willing to spend going after candidates that they think might be progressive on Israel or Palestine. But these are also the same candidates that are championing Medicare for all. And the 
Green New Deal, the gun violence prevention measures that we need here in the United States. So it's deeply intertwined with the progressive movement in that sense. There was a moment this last election cycle where folks from the Sunrise movement came to If Not Now and said, what are you guys doing about APAC? And we said, you're right. This is our fight. These are our people. And we didn't take responsibility for them. So that spurred the campaign that If Not Now just recently launched a couple months ago, our campaign to delegitimize APAC. We know that like our goal of influencing US politics on Israel-Palestine will run through APAC one way or another. So it's worthwhile in that sense. But also as progressive Americans and members of the American Jewish community, we know it's our responsibility to make APAC just as toxic, at the very least in the Democratic Party as an organization like the NRA. We have to show people what their true colors are so that when there's a Democrat running for Congress and you tell someone, oh, they take money from APAC, it's an automatic no vote because APAC undermines our values as progressives. APAC undermines democracy here in the United States and in Israel-Palestine, and we know they have to be defeated. So that's why we're taking on APAC. And I think how it fits into our identity as progressive American Jews in general. I think it's very important that APAC is challenged. APAC, you said it yourself, they literally supported people that participated and endorsed the January 6th insurrection. At the same time, I think it's a big question. I know If Not Now has done a lot of work in terms of trying to organize within our communities. And I was wondering if you think electorally orienting yourselves in that way is the best use of your time. How that fits into a broader discussion of community organizing as opposed to electoral organizing. Yeah, I think it has a lot to do with how If Not Now as an organization has like defined timelines in terms of the change we're trying to bring about. I think the original iteration of If Not Now had this naive dream that we would end the occupation in 10 years. We know that's not going to happen. We probably know that like ending apartheid in Israel, Palestine is a 30, 40, 50 year project, which makes me so sad to say, but that's probably the truth of it. And so we kind of work backwards from there, right? If we say, I don't know, we're 50 years away from ending apartheid. What needs to happen? We know that the American government needs to be putting pressure on Israel. What needs to have the American government doing that? American political consensus has to be transformed. What is our best vehicle for transforming the American political center and consciousness? Probably the American progressive movement. The American progressive movement is growing rapidly and also holds the values that are aligned with the world that we're fighting for. So probably the success of the American progressive movement is our vehicle to influence American politics. And so how do we influence the American progressive movement. We need to, at the very least, get the American Jewish community out of the way. The likes of APAC and DMFI and the federations, right, all the organizations that are today able to drive this wedge between American Jews and progressives by saying, if you are fighting for accountability for the Israeli government, then you are against the Jewish people, right? You're somehow anti-Semitic. That's the wedge that these organizations are able to drive today. And so it's our job to go into the American Jewish community in organized so that that wage is no longer effective. Our vision is that hundreds of thousands of American Jews will be in the streets with the American progressive movement and with Palestinians five or 10 years from now. That's the interim goal, right? Is like, can we prepare the American Jewish community to align itself with the progressive movement and with Palestinians to fight for the version of the world that includes ending apartheid and that also includes the Green New Deal? very bold plans there. Gotta try, right? No, absolutely. I wanted to ask two questions. If not now, at least when it comes to the Jewish progressive movement, 
generally speaking, in America, is not on its own. There are other organisations. It's a big country. Some of the main organisations that come to mind are Jewish Voice for Peace, if you want to include to your right, I believe, uh, J Street. And then there are more local ones, J Fred, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. So I was wondering, without necessarily going into any kind of examination, do you like these guys? Do you not like these guys? Is there petty drama which can happen? What kind of vision does, if not now, have? Specifically now talking about organisations, are you able to communicate? Are you able to share resources? Are you able to organise things together? Is that something that is happening right now? Or is that something that used to happen better? Or is that something that you might want to think about more in the future? The short answer is yes, but I'll say something how we came to be here. I think one of the things that has made the American progressive movement so successful in the last 10 or 15 years has been the entry of this idea of movement ecology. I think historically nonprofits have seen themselves as siloed off from anybody else and it's kind of all or nothing, right? Either like we win or who cares because we didn't win kind of thing. But luckily, organizations are realizing if it is the case that we're all aligned around the same general version of the world, we're actually all in relationship with one another, whether we thought we were or not. And I think that's an idea that has really percolated down into the American Jewish progressive, you know, left, however you want to define it as well. Organizations have really sharpened their understanding of what their job is. As it is now, if not now, occupies a liminal space. You're very right that there's folks to the right of us in J Street, there's folks to the left of us with Jewish Voice for Peace. And we had to ask ourselves the question of what is our actual role? What is our contribution? here. And the thing we realized was no one is taking responsibility for the work of moving people. No one is taking people on a journey. No one is helping American Jews grapple with Zionism, grapple with the Nakba. And that's really the role of If Not Now is to sort of occupy this liminal space between folks like J Street who maybe have the right values but haven't been agitated in the right way or haven't heard the right stories yet or haven't had someone tell them you also deserve a thriving future in a world where the occupation ends. And to the left of us, we have Jewish Voice for Peace that is publicly pro-BDS, publicly anti-Zionist, very tightly aligned with the Palestinian rights movement. And we sit in between, removing people from, I think, liberal Zionist camp or to like neutrals, as we call it, right? People that are pretty active on a lot of other justice issues in the U.S. with exceptionalize Israel-Palestine for any number of reasons. And then the segments of the Jewish community that are extremely activated on Israel-Palestine. And it's our job to move people and agitate and educate and bring folks into conversation and show that they have a home in the Palestinian rights movement. But that's all to say we do have really nice relationships with J Street, whether it be J Street staffers who are members of If Not Now or other members of J Street staff that are always happy to talk with us. And the same can be said for JVP. And we have good relationships with any number of Palestinian organizations and back channels with others. But I think it's been able to like happen in the last seven or 10 years because we all understand that we each play our role. And I think people have realized that actually the work that If Not Now is doing is critical and that no one is going to like grow their power if we're not successful. This is something that now that the two of us are working on a podcast and some other things in terms of knowing the right people to help with logistics or technical stuff. There are organizations that are able to cooperate at least on certain subjects and can share resources and someone might know someone who works somewhere. That certainly helps. When it comes to, and this is going to be my final question, and it's a question that I think about a lot and I've asked a lot of people involved in the two main issues that attract the most interest in Jewish communal politics, Israel-Palestine or anti-Semitism. It's a question that's also relevant to Na'amod, which in some ways is a very similar organization.
organization to, if not now, down to the color scheme. That is to do with the challenge that specifically campaigning around Israel-Palestine as the central focus of your Jewish campaigning, even if you come to it from an opposition standpoint, you are opposed very strongly to politics that the Israeli state is engaged in now. Is it not better to pursue a more holistic approach towards Jewish communal and cultural concerns? Because that approach ends up fighting fire with water rather than fighting fire with fire. I think that in the American context in particular, much of American Jewish communal spaces reading back on the history, 1967 is such an important point in American Jewish history as the time when Jewish communal pride was able to be restored after the Holocaust with the victory of Israel and that in many ways has dominated ever since. I think that there are symptoms of this kind of communal organizing when it comes to the kind of Jewish culture that is produce the kind of ways in which Jewish communal discourse is limited to very specific things. There isn't a overarching Jewish communal body that claims to be the representative voice of communal Jewry, but those that try at least to some extent, the AJC for example, they're not democratic institutions. They don't even pertain to be democratic institutions like the Board of Deputies in Britain or at the student level, the Union of Jewish Students. There isn't an American Jewish Student Union. It seems to me that with the kind of resources and size and the experience that the American Jewish left has, there could be a lot more done when it comes to creating a diasporic alternative and transforming the idea of what mainstream Jewish communal life can become and changed in that way. I mean, one example that you have is the Workers' Circle that's been around for such a long time. Organisations with resources, organisations with experience, and ones that articulate a much more interesting vision than this kind of Zionist-assimilationist dichotomy that we seem to be having in many areas of the diaspora, especially if you are not religious. At this point, I'm sort of rambling because this is my default speech anytime this issue comes comes out. But I want to know, is this discourse that goes on in If Not Now and how you place yourself and what can we expect in the future? The issue you're naming, I think, is of central importance and central motivation for the work of If Not Now. Personally, I can say it's something that I wrestle with every day and every time I choose to do something with If Not Now. Because I don't want my Jewish identity to be dependent on Israel or Zionism. I've had to work very hard to disentangle my Jewish identity from those things because I don't believe that is what Jewish civilization, so to speak, has been about for thousands of years. I don't think that has been the key thing that has kept our tradition going across the generations. And I don't think that's the wisdom that I want to be tapping into when I practice my Judaism and live my life Jewishly. And so you're right, there's this like central dissonance, I think, between like, well, if we don't want a Jewish identity that's bound, governed, defined by Israel and Zionism, then what does it mean for us to be dedicating so much of our Jewish lives to doing work around Israel-Palestine? I think part of it for me is thinking about what is the American Jewish community that I want to raise my kids in. If I want to be able to send my kids to a Jewish day school that is well-resourced and deeply connected with the like community, how does the American Jewish community have to transform on the issue of Israel-Palestine? That's part of my self-interest. I also think about the amount of resource capture 
that has happened. The literally hundreds of millions of dollars that are spent on pro-Israel programming and millions and millions of dollars that are donated to just like organizations in Israel every year. When I think about how could that money be better put to use in the United States, right? I think about like the high school I went to, my graduating class was 46. I remember so many kids from the like day school that I went to for elementary school, those families not choosing to send their kids to the high school because they couldn't afford another four years of private Jewish day school tuition. And we're lucky Jews have been incredibly successful in the United States. And wouldn't it be nice if our resources could be spent on helping the next generation be literate with Jewish text in having them feel a sense of ownership over their tradition and building a Jewish identity that is thick and full of vitality and the kind of identity that can be passed on to the next generation because parents know what they're practicing and know how to teach as opposed to some version of Jewish identity that is just loving Israel. It's incredibly thin and to think that like we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars building this Jewish identity that like I question, I mean, we already see it. It isn't relevant to people's lives. And so people walk away from Judaism because they don't see an alternative. And so I think you're right. There's sort of like an irony. And like for those of us that are diasporists that don't want a Jewish identity that's defined by Israel and Zionism, like how can we be doing this work? And for me, I think it's because I need to bring my community with me so that I can have a Jewish community that I want to be a part of and that can give the next generation and my kids the education and experiences I want them to have. The focus on being able to raise children in a Jewish community that we would like to be able to do that is really important and thinking about the way that our tradition have been passed on from generation to generation and the fact that that's only possible in community with each other. And if these communities stay so Zionist, it's hard to imagine wanting to send my kids to there because there's a lot of deprogramming that I think we've all had to go through and de-learning and learning new stories and synthesizing these different stories. Zach's question really reminded me, I think it was like six months ago, Josh, you and I were chatting on the phone and it was basically the same discussion of like, what is If Not Now's place in a broader movement and should If Not Now be focused on embracing a broader vision for social transformation from a Jewish lens or focusing more on fighting APAC and things like that. And I think there's interesting questions to be had about how actions that you guys are doing connect to this bigger vision and hearing that you guys do have connections with JVP and even JC street but also i don't know with like the workers circle which doesn't even focus on israel palestine at all but different jewish organizations that you guys do have some connection to and i think the question of what if not now is doing is important but it also understanding how it fits into this bigger ecology of the movements that are existing in the organizations within it is really important and thinking about how we can facilitate this sort of coordination beyond just informal channels of communication which are important and are frankly the foundation of further coalition politics. But it does to me, like what Zach and I are trying to do with this podcast, and it is trying to build that common ground and unity across the Jewish left, and not necessarily subsuming organizations like If Not Now into something bigger, but fitting like them into like pieces of the puzzle into something bigger that can really actually successfully lead our communities, and not just imagine, but demonstrate another form of Jewish life and Jewish communal vitality. I think it's been great to have you here 
I'm really excited that we got to make this happen. You've been a bit of an inspiration for me, and I do see you as a mentor. You've really helped me learn how to teach and organize, and I really wanted to thank you for that. Do you have any last points you want to bring up before we wrap this up? First of all, I'm like very grateful for the opportunity to just like come and talk with two very wise people, and to the extent that for whatever reason you guys think that the things coming out of my mouth have some sort of value, like very humbled by that. Truly, the pleasure is mine. And Ben, I will say like, you know, there's this like thing that happens at camp, right? Where like the folks who are a few years older, right? Like we're always watching of like, oh, who are the folks that are a few years younger that are like the up and comers, right? Like who's going to be standing in, in our shoes? Ben, you were always one of those people. And so I don't think you should undersell yourself. I feel like camp is the kind of place that uh, shows people's true character. And I think I know you to be someone with, with the highest of characters. So I'm grateful for you and the work you're doing and the learning and teaching that you are going to do for this movement. Thank you. It means a lot. Last thoughts. I mean, just I think this conversation has made me think about relationship between Israel-Palestine work and Palestinian solidarity work and like the diasporist movement. I think the thing that I just like realized in sitting here is that we need each other in really critical ways for there to be a successful Jewish movement for Palestinian rights. There needs to be a different kind of Jewish identity that folks can step into. And I think that is diasporism. But likewise, right, you can't step into the like converse of diasporism is Zionism, right? And so like, there needs to be work to lead more and more Jews to grapple with Zionism and to hopefully walk away from that. And that I think is the work of If Not Now. And so I think the interplay between the two is beautiful and essential and, and strategic. And so I suppose onwards together, we're all pulling on the same road. Wow, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been great having you. 